If you have your Bibles this morning, uh, and we'll turn to them to 1 Samuel 22, 1 Samuel chapter 22. And I will say again, uh, happy Mother's Day. I'm Donnie Mathis, one of the pastors here at Christ Fellowship Cherrydale. And this week, we'll continue examining the comparison that the writer of 1 Samuel uh, has been giving us between Saul and David to show, just like we've seen over the last few weeks, the continuing decline of Saul and the rise of David as king. This week, the madness of King Saul ratchets up another notch. And I'll admit, to be perfectly honest, that this week's sermon text presents to us the beauty, which is also the difficulty, of preaching through books of the Bible. If I were combing through the scriptures to pick a text for any Sunday sermon, much less Mother's Day, I don't think that I would ever gravitate to this passage. It's pretty gruesome in some places. But if we truly believe that every word of Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, we need to dig deeply into what the author of 1 Samuel is teaching here about God, His Word, and His anointed kings so that we can become mature and equipped for every good work that He's prepared for us to do. So this morning, we're going to begin reading in chapter 22, and we're going to read verses 20 to 23. Just those few. Along with this idea of you will be safe with me. So, we see there in verse 20, this, everything kind of revolves around this singular encounter. However, one of the sons of Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, escaped. His name was Abiathar, and he fled to David. Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, I know that Doeg the Edomite was there that day, and that he was sure to report to Saul. I myself am responsible for the lives of everyone in your father's family. And then he says these uh, words here in verse 23, two commands and one promise. Stay with me. Don't be afraid for the one who wants to take my life wants to take your life. You will be safe with me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would illuminate your word that you would give us the ability not only to see the truth that is declared in your word, but also to receive it gladly. Lord, that is a work that only you can do. And we pray this morning that when we are done examining these couple of chapters, that we would have a greater trust in you as you've revealed yourself in your word and that your spirit would work to cause us more and more to desire to submit to it. That those things in our lives that are stumbling blocks that cause us to want to rebel against the truth would be removed 
and that we would gladly submit to what your word says for our flourishing and for the glory of your name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Safety is kind of a relative term. I've been blessed, honestly, in that I've had very few times in my life where I truly feared, rationally at least, for my safety. I do, however, have a mother and a daughter who make up for this lack in me. My mom faithfully keeps track of when there is potential weather events, not only where she lives, but also in the upstate so that I'll be prepared because she knows that I don't really look at the weather channel. Although I will admit as, my, as I've gotten older, I do look a little more. Although going up from nothing is, is even still a little bit, not enough for her uh, happiness. And whenever Hallie sees even the least threatening cloud in the sky, she's ready to equip her bunker in the shower of our downstairs bathroom. She gets her pillow, she gets her blanket, she gets her snack, she gets her device. She's ready to ride it out. And even recently, Hallie was a bit dismayed to find out that my mother, the cautious one, allowed me to learn how to ride a bicycle without ever wearing a helmet, knee pads, or elbow pads. She was aghast. Like, how could grandmommy say she loves you and let you do this? And my parents, even my super careful, protective mom, thought I was safe, and frankly, that the threat of injury was a good motivator for learning how to ride effectively. Today, is. Hallie did, they would be thought to be negligent with my safety at best. And, well, they didn't care about me at worst. You see, safety is a matter of perspective. So how can we get the right perspective according to what the Scripture teaches on what it means to be safe with the King? So let's see if we can work that out. So the first thing that we need to do, and we see here outlined in this passage over and over and over again, is to seek a word from the Lord. To seek a word from the Lord. And we're going to see a comparison of this with Saul and with David. And we're going to see the effectiveness or lack of effectiveness in this search. So let's look what we see with Saul. In 1 Samuel 22, verse 6, we see this statement. Saul heard, notice just heard, rumor, gossip, etc. Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. That doesn't say that it was from the Lord, does it? In fact, it wasn't. It was just gossip. Well, let's see another example. It's sort of littered throughout the two chapters. Chapter 23, verse 7. When it was reported, again, Saul's spies, his, um, you know, gossip circuit throughout all of the land. When it was reported to Saul that David had gone to Calah, he said, God has handed him over to me for he has trapped himself by entering a town with barred gates. Now, now let's look at that for a second. Notice what he says there. Because his spies have spotted David in this walled city, walled town, on the outskirts of the land, he assumes that it's a work of God. 
Now Saul has been hoping for a word from the Lord, and he even goes so far here as to assume that David's entry into this town to protect the town from the Philistines, by the way, what Saul should have been doing, was proving that God was at work to give Saul what he wanted. When actually what was going on was that this action of David was proving that he was acting more like a faithful servant and more like a faithful king than Saul. But Saul is not going to receive a word from the Lord. Because God has rejected Saul as king. Now, if you want to see this all unfold, you can go back to chapter 15 where time after time again, we're seeing that God rejects Saul because Saul, who had received the word from the Lord, has rejected the word from the Lord and has disobeyed over and over and over again. You see, all that Saul has at this point is his own assumptions. And we're in big trouble if we're leaning on our own assumptions. Because he wants the outcome that he desires. His desired outcome is the removal of David. And surely this opportunity, David being trapped in the city, and we could use that in quotes, must be God delivering David into his hands. Here's the first thing we need to sort of walk away from in looking at this example of Saul. As we seek a word from the Lord, <clears throat> if the word that we receive from the Lord is always, always in alignment with what we desire for ourselves, we've quite likely mistaken our voice for his voice. Now, there are times when our heart is aligned with God and we study his word and, and, and we are digging into his word and the truth that God reveals from his word aligns with our desires and we can move forward in, in, in great confidence. But we need to be really very, very careful when things align so quickly. That's why we need good counselors. We're going to see this playing out in David's life, that there are counselors who can, who can ask hard questions of David, but as we will see unfolding in this narrative, Saul won't listen to anybody. We need each other to know for sure, are you really hearing from the Lord or are you just hearing what you want to hear? So let's look at the example of David. We get three, three little snippets here. Then the prophet Gad said to David, this is in verse 5 of chapter 22, don't stay in the stronghold, leave and return to the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Herod. Now, to give a little context of what we are, are jumping in here in verse 5, in the first four verses of chapter 22, David, who's been running for his life time after time, and you remember last week Saul has some really bad spear aim, even though he continues to carry it around everywhere he goes. David has now found a little bit of safety for his family and the band of malcontents, frankly, that have gathered with him. There are about 400 of them, kind of underlying the sort of difficulty and trouble of Saul's leadership. You've got the desperate, the debtors, and the discontented all gathered together in Moab. 
Now, we're not really sure why it is that they've gone to Moab, maybe because of the common courtesy that was given to the rivals of their enemies. You know, the kind of, the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of situation. This sort of loose confederation because David is a, is a one who is aspiring to the throne of Israel. Then they're going to give him a little bit of help because, you know, right now they don't like Saul too much and eventually they're not going to like David. Or maybe... It was because his great-grandmama, Ruth, was from Moab. And David's family had gone to Moab before during a famine, and they had come back to the land after the famine was over, and many of his family had died. He's safe. He's secure. He's got the Moabites at his back. But he hears a word from the Lord. We don't know for sure if it was a word he wanted to hear or a word he didn't want to hear. But Gad, the prophet, says, you got to go back to Judah. You can't hang out down here. you got to go back to Judah. That's where God wants you to be. Now, God's leading. He's leading him to a place of safety but maybe not safety defined in exactly the way we would like. Maybe not the kind of security that David would have hoped for after running for so long. But he goes. All right, let's see another example of this. In chapter 23, verses 1 through 4, it was reported to David, look, the Philistines are fighting against Kayla and raiding the threshing floor. So David inquired of the Lord. Notice he's not going to just go headlong into battle. He's not the king yet. He's not going to go attack the Philistines with his four, even maybe at this point, 600 malcontents. He's going to wait to hear from the Lord. Should I launch an attack against these Philistines? The Lord answered David, launch an attack against the Philistines and rescue Calah. Now, David's got this word from the Lord. God has spoken. God has given this indication of what it is that he's supposed to do. Launch the attack. David goes and tells his men, ah, let's go and launch the attack. But notice what David's men say. Hold on a minute here. You can kind of expect it. This is not a finely tuned army. This is a group of malcontents. But David's men said to him, look, hold on. We're afraid here in Judah. You've already brought us back. I mean, we were real good and safe down in Moab. You've already brought us back here to Judah. We're already a little unsafe and on the run again. Why in the world would you want to reveal where we are, go to this place, fight this battle? We might lose. Are you sure this is a word from the Lord or what you want to do? He entertains it. He doesn't lose his cool. He doesn't throw a spear at anybody. He doesn't do anything but go and inquire again of the Lord. And the Lord answered him, go at once to Kayla, for I will hand the Philistines over to you. Now, here's the thing. David had received a word from the Lord before about the Philistine, you know, the big tall giant dude, who killed Goliath. Was it David or God? Oh, it was God. God handed Goliath over to David. David had this hope in a future revealing of God's grace because he had received God's grace in the past. So he goes. He heard from the Lord and he responded. One last, actually, yeah, one last time. 
Chapter 23, verses 9 through 11. When David learned that Saul was plotting evil against him, he was going to come and attack him, he said to the priest Abiathar, bring the ephod. Then David said, Lord God of Israel, your servant has reliable information that Saul intends to come to Calah and destroy the town because of me. Now notice this for a second. This is one of Saul's towns in his own country. He's already destroyed the priests and their family in Nov. And now he's decided, David's here. I'm just going to go and destroy the whole city of my people for the simple fact that David protected them from the Philistines. They've not been giving aid and comfort to the enemy. They've not been doing anything wrong. The only thing that's been happening there is they've been attacked by the Philistines. Saul should have protected them. He doesn't, but now he's going to go destroy it and hide all of his problems. Or so he thinks. So David inquires of the Lord, is he going to come? He's going to come. He asks the second question, will the citizens of Calah hand me over to him? You better believe it. Lord God of Israel, please tell your servant. The Lord answered, he will come down. And then David asked, will the citizens of Kelly hand me over? They will. You better go. So how can we sum this up? How can we sum up what it is we need to learn from this seeking of a word from the Lord? Well, the first thing we need to remember is very, very, very important. Followers of Jesus have the distinct advantage of having the whole counsel of God's revelation of himself. Seeking the Lord is not quite as difficult as it was in David's day. Those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus do not have to depend upon a prophet like Samuel or Gad or any of the others that will come along. We don't have to have an ephod brought to us that would hold the Urim and the Thummim. We need only to study God's Word. God has given us the full and complete revelation of himself in the scriptures. And all that we need to do to seek a word from the Lord is to seek to understand what its authors were trying to teach their readers. You say that's difficult. Yeah, it can be. There's some really difficult passages in this text that we're looking at today. But we have more tools for doing that investigative work of studying the Bible than any generation that has ever lived. And frankly, your pastors are more than happy to provide you with more tools to help you grow in your ability to understand what the biblical authors are teaching. And when we learn what the authors of the Bible are teaching, we have a direct, specific revelation for us from God. That's all we need. But not only that, followers of Jesus also have the indwelling presence of the Spirit to convict them of the truthfulness of God's Word. You see, we not only have God's revelation of Himself, the Spirit-inspired Word, we also, as we understand what the biblical authors are teaching, have the Spirit who will apply those truths to our lives in ways that are going to align with the principles taught in the biblical text. Now, our specific circumstance might not be addressed directly 
But there are always going to be truths and principles that align with that thing we're struggling to understand, that thing we're struggling to navigate. If we want to know more of what God's will is for our lives or how it is that we're going to flourish under the kingship of God, all we need do is study his word, seek to understand what his authors, spirit-inspired authors were saying, and then live out the truth that the spirit convicts us of. And we need to always remember that the Spirit will never lead us to a quote-unquote truth from Scripture that contradicts what the Spirit inspired the biblical authors to teach. We don't need a mystical experience. That doesn't mean that folks don't have those, but we don't need them. The primary means of God showing us His grace and revealing to us His truth is studying His Scriptures. Don't wait for some mystical experience where God intervenes out of nowhere and lay aside the revelation of himself that God's given us. This is what we need. This is what God wants us to know in a specific, direct, authoritative word that he has given. So, if we seek the word from the Lord then we need to submit to the word from the Lord. Because it's one thing to hear from the Lord, it's another thing to do what he says. So, there are two elements to this. The first thing is trust that God's word is true. Then the people of Gad, or the prophet Gad, sorry, not people of Gad, getting my people and my tribes mixed up there. Then the prophet Gad said to David, don't stay in the stronghold. It's what maybe you would want to do. Leave and return to the land of Judah. And then we have this explanation. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. Is there questioning here? Is he saying, you know, Lord, I don't know. Maybe I need to lay out a fleece. Maybe I need, you know, whatever uh, kind of sign. No, God spoke. David acted. There are times when God says, this is what you need to do. You need to turn from that sin. You need, to, you need to forgive the person that you're angry with. You need to reconcile with this person. Maybe that you've wronged. You're like, hold on a minute here. I don't know if I want to do that. You see, it's not just enough to seek a word from the Lord and receive a word from the Lord. We also need to submit to the word from the Lord. So David here is told, go, leave what you might consider safety and go to this place in the forest. So we see there in chapter 23, on the other side of this command to go and fight, remember his soldiers, malcontents, they were a little hesitant to go, but David heard from the Lord twice, go and fight. I'll give you the victory. Notice what happens in verse 5 of chapter 23. David and now these malcontents trust that God's word is true. And this is what we see. Then David and his men went to Caloth, fought against the Philistines, drove their livestock away. It seems like they had brought the livestock to carry back all the things, that all the food they were going to steal from this place. They drove their livestock away. Go chase your cows. They can't even carry back your stuff anymore and inflicted heavy losses on them. So David rescued, God rescued the inhabitants of Calah. 
One more time. The third event. So David and his men, numbering about 600. They've gone from 400 to 600 here in chapter 23. More and more malcontents. Left Kali at once. Moved from place to place. They're going all over the place. Moving around. Not, you know, not sleeping in the same place one, more than one night. When it was reported to Saul that David had escaped from Kali, he called off the expedition. Remember, he thought that he had got a word from the Lord that this is God handing David over to him and now David's slippery escaped. But notice, Saul searched for him every day, but God did not hand David over to him. David is going and doing what God has called him to do. He's responding to what God says and God is not handing him over. So, what does it mean to trust that God's word is true? When the Spirit convicts us with the truth of God's word, submitting to the word of, from the Lord requires trusting the truth. Trust. The fact of the matter is, is that God has never led any one of us astray. God is at work. The way that we get off the path, the way that we lead ourselves into places where we're not flourishing in the way that we desire is by rejecting the truth that God has made known to us. The way of flourishing, the way to find what it is that God has for us and to be the people that God has called us to be comes through trusting the truth. Looking back on those ways that God has been faithful in the past and finding in that a foundation for launching forward in the thing that God is calling us to do. And so when we trust the truth, we must act in alignment with the truth. So we receive the word from the Lord. We recognize the truth. We trust the truth. Then we act on the truth. Because we've not completed the ark, the process. If we hear the truth, we say we believe the truth, and then we don't act on it. We're stuck. We're spinning our wheels rather than moving forward in what it is that God has called us to do. Well, how does that happen? How do you act upon the truth? You take radical, oh, I didn't clear that out, responsibility. So at NGU, a few weeks ago, we were blessed to have Furman's head basketball coach, Bob Ritchie, who is an alumnus of NGU, by the way, as our graduation speaker. And he shared his testimony of how God used NGU in his life and shared about how the pain of losing the chance to go to the big dance in 2022 on a 35-foot heave, and it was that if you were watching the game, gave his team the resolve for this year's effort, the work that they put in that led to their, ultimately, their victory over Virginia during March Madness. It was an amazing, exciting game. They came back from a big deficit. They had NGU's pet band in the end zone playing for them. That was surely why they won. And he described their motto of accountability. And it, you know, he said he wasn't a preacher, but he sure did sound like it when he gave this list. Three letters. B, C, D. So accountability, C, 
comes through B, C, D. No blaming, no complaining, and no defending. Now, not on defense, but defending yourself when you mess up, right? No blaming, no complaining, and no defending. Now, if you look, I'm just going to say, back in chapter 15, with the example of Saul losing the kingdom, what you're going to recognize is you're going to get a lot of blaming, a lot of complaining, and a lot of defending. Because there's no accountability. And I think that we can see in David and Saul a contrast between taking radical responsibility based upon the truth that God reveals and what it looks like to live in the realm of blaming, complaining, and defending. Saul, that's all he does. Saul runs from responsibility as he rejects the word from the Lord spoken by Ahimelech about David. You know, we don't have time to read it, but in chapter 22, Ahimelech, before he gets slaughtered, is going to talk about way after way after way that David is a faithful servant of Saul. And in being a faithful servant of Saul, continues to be a faithful servant of God. So why wouldn't he help him? He's not trying to undermine Saul. Saul's just lost his ever-loving mind. But Saul doesn't want to take responsibility for what he's lost and how God has rejected him as king. So Saul runs from responsibility. He doesn't go down and rescue this city from the Philistines. Saul runs from responsibility as he rejects that, that his need and duty to save his people. And he rejects Jonathan's trust in the word from the Lord about David's kingship. He's mad and angry about the fact that Jonathan has a covenant with David. And he doesn't trust even his son. Notice what we see there in chapter 22, verses 7 and 8. Saul said to his servants, listen, men of Benjamin. Notice he thinks that in this court, surrounded by, yes, men, it seems, only people from his tribe, is Jesse's son going to give you all the fields and vineyards like I've done? Essentially, is he going to pay you off like I have? To tell you what, tell me what I want to hear? Do you think he'll make all of you commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds? Now he's going to kill you. No, that's not who he is because he's a faithful king, not like you. And he goes on, notice the complaining. That's why all of you have conspired against me. Nobody tells me when my own son makes a covenant with Jesse's son. None of you cares about me or tells me about that my son has stirred up my own servant to wait in ambush for me, which by the way, he's not. We'll learn about that in chapter 24, as is the case today. Saul plays the blame, complain, and defend game. He claims to have acted in alignment with God's word, which is a big fat lie, and defends himself by blaming his soldiers for not killing the cattle in chapter 15. And God, and he blames God even because, you know, we just wanted to worship you. Well, not the way God said. Blaming, complaining, defending. Well, let's look at David's radical responsibility. We read about it at the beginning. Notice what happens. Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, I knew that Doeg the Edomite was there. I knew it. And that he was sure to report to Saul. I should have known better. Does he blame? Does he complain? Does he defend? No. I should have known better. You see, David could have blamed the death of Abiathar's family on the madness of King Saul, because certainly he's evil and mad, or on the evil heart of Doeg. 
He could have complained about the fact that Abiathar had come to him while he himself was on the run. He could have defended himself by claiming that no one could have known that going to the priest would lead to this tragic outcome. Or he could have even taken the stance that this event was just the fulfillment of God's judgment on the house of Eli. There are all kinds of avenues of blaming and complaining and defending that David could have taken, but he doesn't do any of that. He takes responsibility in the way that a true king should. So what does he say? Two commands and a promise. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. You will be safe with me. In a manner that foreshadows the perfect work accomplished through the death and resurrection of the ultimate king from David's family line. David invites Abiathar into his family. Provides him with protection from the attack of an enemy who wants him dead. And gives him hope for the future. You see, that's exactly what the true and final king from David's line offers to any and everyone who will repent and believe in him as king. You see, over and over and over again, we've already seen and we're going to see in the future that David is a picture of a faithful king, this man after God's own heart, certainly flawed, and he's going to fail in just horrifying ways. But he's pointing to the great king, the perfect king, the eternal king, who will secure for his people a kingdom that will never end. And when we are aligned with that king, we will be safe. He is with us. Those were his departing words. His last words were, I will be with you always. But even in that, we need to remember that safety is always defined by perspective. Most, if not all, would have thought that it was ludicrous to believe that Jesus was safe when he was dying for sinners on the cross. But he was safe. He was protected by God. He was fulfilling the plan of God. He had sought a word from the Lord. Think about in the garden how he sought this word. Not my will but your will be done. But he was safe. Because he sought a word from the Lord. He submitted to the word from the Lord. That did not mean that the road was going to be easy or painful mean that no ultimate harm would come to him or those who believe in him. You see, those who believe in him, their lives are hidden with Christ in God. So Jesus can be speaking the truth when he says to his disciples at the end of his life that some of his followers will be killed for their faith in him, but not a hair on their heads will perish. And he's not saying they're going to move their long hair out of the way and just cut their necks off. He's saying you cannot be touched by the enemy because death no longer will have a hold on those who belong to me. And if death doesn't win, then we're always safe. You see, the return of the king is getting nearer. 
our final resurrection with each day that passes is one day closer. But so is the judgment that comes with the return of the king. So if you've never placed your faith in Jesus as king, he's calling you to do that today. And, and when we pray and when we sing, there will be folks in the back who will be more than willing and more than excited to tell you about how you can become a part of this king's kingdom. And for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, we can live with confidence that comes from knowing there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus the Lord. So let's live with confidence. Let's take the risk that he's calling us to take so that we can live our lives for the glory of Jesus as we seek his word, seek him from his word, and we submit to what he calls us to do. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will t take these words, that you will reveal your tr the truth of these words to us, and that by your spirit you would make that truth sweet and not bitter. And that we would respond in faith and receive in Jesus the life that we desire. The flourishing for which we've hoped. Realizing that the picture of what that is could very well be different than what we've envisioned. But the picture that Jesus is drawing is far better than any we could have ever conceived. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.